This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review the Moray Eels Eat the Space Needle by Space Needle. Did you guys see the recent story about the eel that got into the guy's rectum? And I'm all for noise. Like, I like Sonic Youth. There is such an indulgence to this record. You know, it's not a pleasant sound to listen to. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Benici, and joining me, as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, you're a little under the weather for this particular episode, which is a shame because I was going to call on your golden pipes in order to <laughs> uh, in order to speak freely and at length about this album. But luckily, uh, pinch hitting for you is the requestor of this requested review. Requested, requested review. The first time we've done this, Jay, uh, we're bringing in. The person who has brought forth an album, laid it upon us for us to sink our teeth in, two into, I, sp- I don't know why I split into into two words, but it should have been into. Anyway, Mr. David Gorgos, otherwise known as Dirty Gert. Where, first of all, where did Dirty Gert come from? Oh, Dirty Gert is my softball name. Uh, we, we all have girl names on our softball team. Nice. And... Uh, <laughs> Because I had never, I hadn't thrown a ball for about 20 years. Uh, I was in practice, and I threw the ball into the infield, and someone said, "Nice throw, Gertrude," and it stuck. <laughs> nice. So it didn't so have what... to do with the fact that you have DG as the initials. Uh, no, that's just uh, karma, I think. It, it was just it. It was meant to be. Yeah, it works out so well. That's why you're in a softball uniform in your um, Twitter profile pic. Oh, exactly. Nice. Exactly. Excellent. If you're going to pick an alter ego on the internet, have it be ridiculous. <laughs> um, and so you have brought to us an album that neither Jay nor I were familiar with. And this is sort of a reoccurring theme with the albums that you suggest in, in that we usually have never heard of them. So can you give us a little bit of background about your music upbringing um, did you, were you in bands at all? Were you a DJ? Did you, uh, are you just a music obsessive? Um, I am the reason that musicians can live. I am a consumer. Uh, nice. I, I can't play anything, but I do have a great appreciation. Um, I grew up in the Schenectady, New York area. Uh, so I discovered college radio, uh, with, uh, WCDB in Albany around, uh, in high school. And then when I got to college in 91, uh, I got involved with the radio station, uh, worked my way up to music director, and uh, I, I went to college at SUNY Purchase outside of New York City, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is how I knew about Space Needle, uh, being a uh, Providence band that played in New York a lot, and, and you know possibly some, knowing some of these more obscure bands on major labels or minor majors that we got promo copies of. Uh, but maybe never sold anything. And so the album that you suggested is from that era, I'm guessing? Um, yeah. Okay. Oh, and, and, then, and then when I graduated, I worked at uh, Kim's Underground in New York City, 96 and 97. So uh, I knew a lot about the, the New York scene then as well. Uh, so that actually may be when I heard of Space Needle, because I think I missed their first record. And uh, the one that we're reviewing is the one that I grabbed a copy of and got deeply into now we're reviewing their second album which is the moray eels eat the space needle which 
is um, probably one of the longer titles that we've dealt with on this uh, on this particular on this particular podcast. But it has an interesting tie-in that I think would now be a good time to get into with the history of the band. History of the band. Like you mentioned, they were from Providence, Rhode Island, formed in '94. Judd Erbar, is that how you say it? E H R B A R. Drums, vocals, keyboards, guitars, percussion, and Jeff Gatland on guitars and percussion. They released their first album in 95 on Zero Hour. It's called Voyager. Then they added Anders Parker and Max Buckholtz. Parker on guitar, vocals, drums, and percussion. Buckholtz on violin. Released their second album also on Zero Hour in 1997. And this is where the key element of this band comes in for me. The album cover was designed by Roger Dean, who did the album covers for Yes, Uriah Heep, Atomic Rooster, Budgie, Asia, and many, many other bands. Yes being a key one when you're talking about this band. And the song, and then this is another interesting tie-in, the song Never Lonely Alone was featured on the TV show Veronica Mars, which just wrapped up its Kickstarter uh, movie campaign. they They wanted like $2 million and they got $5 million to make the Veronica Mars movie. So, uh, that's pretty cool. So they released an EP, a couple singles, appeared on some compilations, and then broke up uh, the same year that this album came out. Then they played in some bands after this, but this is the key band in terms of uh, Judd Erbar and uh, the rest of the guys. So that's the history of Space Needle. Do you have anything to add to that? I I do know that Anders Parker uh, was active in Varnaline. Mm-hmm. Um, and is currently touring the country, um, partnered with a woman who I don't remember her name, uh, but it's basically a country-style band, and uh, they're doing a tour of living rooms right now. Excellent. Maybe so when, you think about the, when, when you think about uh, Anders Parker's contributions to Space Needle and then listen to him now, it's hard to believe that it's the same guy. Well, or I is wonder, it? Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I want to remind everybody that if you want to suggest a band for review, just like David did, hit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. We didn't get any uh, comments from our Facebook feedback, but we did get a number of likes. So other people were happy that we were doing this album. So this is a, the second album this year that you have suggested to us. The first one was Radio Spangle, which we did a couple weeks ago. Um, and then you're actually going to have another one coming up. And then uh, I I said that it, you buy three, you get the fourth free. So you're going to have a fourth one somewhere down the line. I'm giving up one of my suggestions so that um, I can give you a free one. So let me ask you, do you feel like you're getting your money's worth with our reviews? <laughs> because uh-huh. I get very concerned that we're not <laughs> – that we're not um, – educated enough sometimes i think it's positive because we come to it with a fresh perspective but sometimes the albums that we're reviewing and i'm not tipping my hat here but i don't understand them and i feel like maybe i missed something in the 90s there was an aspect to it that other people connected with for example when we did the radio spangle i think the Closest I could get to it was like Guided by Voices and Pavement and those sorts of bands. But clearly there's a whole another aspect to 90s alternative music that we did, Jay and I, did not explore. 
So I'm curious, actually, my, my real question is, what was, your, what was your reasoning for picking this album? My personal reason of picking this one and Radio Spangle is that there is almost no criticism of these records on the internet. Uh, they just seem to have disappeared completely. And uh, having listened to them for 15 to 20 years, uh, I just did want someone else's perspective, someone to share it with, because it's like listening in a vacuum. Um, these aren't bands I'm familiar with, other than uh, the recorded output. I think I saw Radio Spangle live once, and I never got to see Space Needle. So I'm not involved with the musicians or the scenes in any way. Uh, it's, it's The podcast is just a way of uh, getting another educated opinion out there. Cool. I'm, I'm glad that we're being used as a way to expose people to music that might not have gone or it made it very far past its uh, original release dates. So, and they it. may not make it far after this podcast. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I, I think, well, you know what? The interesting thing is that we still get feedback on albums that we reviewed one and two years ago. That people are just now finding those episodes and just finding those reviews. And we'll get an email or we'll get a post on our Facebook page or, or a message to our Facebook page. And they're like, oh, so awesome that you did this album, or, you know, I heard this review and I don't, I don't really agree with you, but I think the podcast is cool. Or the occasional, you guys are idiots. Um, <laughs> those, those are those are our favorites. Those are our favorites because they tend to be the longest. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, well, there's there's no there. doubt in my mind that one of the best things about the '90s is that they had all these labels uh, throwing money at obscure bands with very limited audiences so mm -hmm. you got these albums that were produced the way that a band would want it to be produced and uh today you can hear music from everyone too but it's usually recorded at home um very limited and uh right so, so when, when you get a band like space needle you 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 can hear the uh commercial uh prospects of the album disappear within the first couple minutes oh i'd say it's faster than uh, a couple that's minutes one of the wonderful things <laughs> <laughs> which is a, probably a good segue for us to actually getting into this record now uh so jay as is our typical starting point mm -hmm. um space needle the more I eels eat space needle um did you find this to be a delicious dish or were you spitting this one out Oh man, did you guys see the recent story about the eel that got into the guy's rectum? <laughs> <laughs> did you see that story? There's no, like, there's something on the internet. Yeah, like I, I think it was in Asia somewhere. Like some guy was swimming or something, and this eel like burrowed itself into his rear end and they had to surgically remove it. That's all I could think about when you were saying the title of this album. Is I just I just had read that on the internet about a half hour ago. Woo. Um, wow. anyway, <laughs> I was, I'm glad to see that the, uh, the album cover was done by the, the artist that did those yes covers, because I, you know, obviously you see the, the similarity there. And I was wondering, you know, is this, are they being ironic, you know, with this kind of album cover in the nineties or was this a tribute or what was going on there? So I, I appreciate that they actually were, uh, I hope honoring the guy by having him do the album cover. I think, uh, it, Kind of sets the pace for the, I would say, probably half of this record mm -hmm. um, in terms of this bizarre 
fantasy world on another planet with bright colors and, you know, kind of soaked in psychedelic nuance. You know, the the first song <clears throat> is 13 minutes long. It starts off. Yeah. You, you pretty much think that at least I thought it was going to be kind of a shoegaze thing with a dissonant kind of overtone to it. And then it just switches to kind of a free jazz <laughs> exploration where they just explore the space for another good six minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, at that point, I'm, you, you don't know, you have no idea what's going to come after that. you get another seven minute song which is you know kind of just atmospheric sounds and effects and a lot of reverb so at that point i'm like all right well this is pretty much what this whole record's gonna be you know it's gonna be just super spacey and trippy then you get the tracks three and four and things take a huge shift track three i think starts off with a, uh, a vocal harmony mm-hmm. at least a double vocal vocal which is different for that for, from what you've heard this point um it has this propelling almost like a, a synth pop kind of like bass and drum thing going on it reminded me of magnetic fields yeah and then there's yeah this delicate voice over top of it you get your light from the star So that kind of piqued my interest at that point because it kind of felt like, uh, oh, I don't know. Some of the stuff that I know you're a big fan of the movie Drive and the music that's in that movie mm-hmm. starts to kind of almost take on that feeling. So then it gets to track four and then they introduce an electric piano out of nowhere. And it's kind of got like a R&B kind of rhythm to it. And, you know, it's got kind of an Elliott Smith vibe with a kind of more of an upbeat drum part behind it so four songs in i'm completely lost where this band's going um i think it turns out 
for me, it's sort of a roller coaster ride of of that pattern repeating itself a little bit. Uh, towards the end of the record, they do between the 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 noise pieces that I'll let David explain because <laughs> I can't get my head around them. When you get to uh, Hot for Krishna, uh, it I, I thought it was kind of maybe my favorite song on the record because it starts off uh it it almost sounded like the drum intro to hot for teacher like there's this fast drum intro part i'm like well okay this is out of nowhere and then it brings in a violin which i hadn't heard on the record yet and as the song builds and goes and goes it's, it's all instrumental the violin pretty much sounds like a shredding guitar like you kind of lose that it's violin for for at least most of the song so I thought that was kind of a cool instrumental thing that, again, it was a whole new direction. It didn't necessarily fit the rest of the record, but I sort of dug it. And then it, it goes into More Than Good Night, which to me sounded like um could have maybe been a demo for a Teenage Fan Club or something. <laughs> like, had a pop sensibility to it, but mm-hmm. it didn't quite sound fully resolved to me if you're, if you're going to kind of try to do a, a more, I guess, straightforward pop song. And then it ends with uh, kind of a quiet, uh, a quiet song that that builds. It has a nice refrain at the end, and kind of remind me of uh, tracks three and four in terms of you know it kind of went pretty well with those. So I think you've, to me, I felt like this album is is maybe got three to four different distinct sounds to it. Um, I think in a way it was similar to Radio, Radio Spangle in that aspect. Um, and then obviously, you know, obviously I'm. I find myself gravitating to one of you know one of those three or four different sounds and not necessarily all three or four. So where were you at, Mr. Minichi? You know, I, I thought from first listen I was going to despise this record, but it sort of grew on me a little bit here and there. Definitely the more accessible songs were the songs I gravitated toward, mm-hmm. like you. The ones that didn't, I, I did find that it was so, it was because they sort of reminded me of weak versions of other songs. Old Spice to me sounded a lot like a My Bloody Valentine song. There was a guitar part in there that sounded straight off of Loveless.
Hypata Lee, I think that's how you say it, or Hypata Lee. Sounds like the beginning of In the Evening by Led Zeppelin. I don't know. Does it sound? Does it remind anybody <clears throat> of that? <clears throat> it, it, what what part? The the very beginning of In the Evening is like got this atmospheric. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it kicks in <clears throat> to the to the actual song. Yeah. Sounds a lot like that. Um, Hot for Krishna, I actually did like. That to me reminds me a lot of. Um, I saw the Swell Season, which is Glenn Hansard of the Frames' other band, the band that was actually the big band um, from the Once soundtrack. Mm-hmm. That to me sounds like a song that they did live, where they just sort of like jammed, mm-hmm. and it was like the violin players going off, and it's like real up tempo, and he's strumming the acoustic guitar real fast. Like that could have been a frame song, that yeah. if if it was a little bit more refined. with you like never lonely alone i i even think that that's a clever lyric um i said it reminded me of magnetic fields as it the it just has a cool feel to it um mm-hmm. same with love left of strangers the electric piano is a, is a nice change of pace um the the vocals are okay they're not as good as on never lonely alone they're a little more droney and they don't mm. do as much work as the other ones one yeah. kind of lullaby again the harmonized vocals it makes me sad because it's like, oh man, there's like three or four songs where they do those harmonies or or doubling, and it just sounds really good. And I wish there was more of that on the record because then there's songs like "Flower for Eldrinon," where it's all this like clean picking guitars and it's barely vo- audible vocals, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, if you could have done some of those harmonies there, it probably would have sounded really like church like and and sound like a choir. And they sort of do that a little bit towards the end, but I wish those I wish those noise songs. They had developed where they where they did use vocals. I wish they developed them more, so they were a little more present in the song. You wanted something to grab onto. Yeah, I just wanted some melody from the vocal to grab onto. The other stuff, you know, the opening track. I don't even. Yeah, it's to me. It sounds like four or five jams that were sort of edited together. I know that's probably they probably did play it live that way, but it just it doesn't sound like a cohesive song. It's. I mean, there's even parts where they just sort of stop and start with a new part, and it's like a a drum solo that goes on for like a minute and a half. And <laughs> I, I would choose. I think I, there's an alternate take of that on the uh, compilation that's on Spotify. Oh, I'm sure they never played it two ways. Or there's, there's a, the there's a 15, twice. well, it's a 15 minute version on the, on Spotify. Oh, okay. on the compilation. And, album. It's, and it sounds very similar to me, but I, yeah. I think it is an alternate take. Yeah. So, I think I grew to like quite a bit of this record when I heard their their pop sensibility start to come through when they were when they were working on the vocal melody a little bit more and they were doing more with the the vocal harmonies when they were toning down the noise and I'm all for noise like I like Sonic Youth I'm all, I'm cool with that um, 
Check that box. I, I can check that box. Um, and they're definitely playing in like, you know, the old school. There's some Brian Eno influence. There's some Velvet Underground influence, some pink, early Pink Floyd, those sorts of bands. But in terms of if they're going for like a space rock, that's where one of the descriptions that I read of them is like a space rock. To me, if you're going to do space rock or if you want to listen to space rock, this atmospheric, long, druggy jams with droning and stuff, I, I would go with spiritualized. That's the, that's the, you know, the avenue I would head down first before I would go to this record. But if you want me to pull a couple songs off of this one, I could easily do that because I think there's some really cool musicianship on this record. But, man, that 13-minute-long song and then that almost 12-minute-long song at the end... Especially the one, the second one, Blade Wash, is just really repetitive, and I just, I, it hurt me. It hurt my, it hurt my head after the second yeah, or third time I listened to it. So that yeah, is, drift. that, that, that is us. David, you said that this was one that you were not necessarily familiar with, but you wanted it to get some exposure. So I'm assuming you, you, you definitely revisited this prior to the podcast. I'm curious as to what your feelings are, both on, on the record itself, and then also on our feedback, if you agree or disagree. Well, I, I listen to it about once a month, so I'm very familiar with the record. Uh, it, and I love that you guys are having trouble nailing down the influences, because I can't either. But you, you just mentioned Eno, Pink Floyd, and the Velvets. Eno and Roxy Music and Pink Floyd and Velvet Underground all had the same tension between different songwriters and musicians. Uh, Eno versus Ferry. Uh, Gilmore versus Barrett, uh, mm-hmm. Reed and Kale, and I feel that same tension on this record with the the Jekyll and Hyde, uh, the jams and the extremely tight, repetitive droning songs like "Never Lonely Alone" and "One Kind of Lullaby." As I was looking at this record, I was having trouble pinning down exactly what that tension was, though, because "One Kind of Lullaby" is an and- Andrews Parker song that he sings and never lonely alone is a, a Judd song. Right. Uh, Judd's, Judd's the drummer and he doesn't vary his drums during never lonely alone the entire time. And I don't think he does during old spice either. Whereas he does get really free in the, in, in the jams. So I, I, I can't figure out where that dynamic comes from in this band, but I, I love it. <laughs> I, I love that it, it goes from that noise to that hypnotism. And as far yeah. as the cover, yeah, as far as the cover being ironic, I, I don't think, I, I don't think it is because I think that this is about half a prog record and half what prog bands would have done while trying to prepare their tight songs. Mm-hmm. Yes, would never be caught jamming, uh, but they were certainly accomplished and and would let things go go nuts within their tight song structures. So this is definitely uh, a lot looser that that kind of fits the era. Now, this is like a mashup of if you took um, the progressive tendencies of yes and combine them with like the drugged out droning of the velvets, but then sort of mashed it into that 90s slow, you know, I, I mentioned magnetic fields, but you could even get into like low and some of those other bands that, you know, droned on. And it's sort of like progressive rock for people who grew up on, like, 80s punk and post-punk or, 
or underground music. Like it definitely has like an attitude as if it's punk, but sort of filtered through truly progressive and, and to the point where it's not even structured at some points, like with, with the track one, which I'm avoiding saying the, uh, the name because it's a, there's a swear word in it. Uh, so I don't have to put these, I don't want to put the explicit tag on another episode because then the <laughs> kids can't listen to it. And then, Oh, uh, you know, the kids are, they're dying to hear the, our review of space needle. They are. There was no There's, parental advisory sticker. I think you should go for it. Uh, Where the yeah, fuck's yeah, the my wallet. wallet? That's the name of the song. I'm going to start playing this for my, for my daughter and see what she thinks. I want to pair up yes. Where the Fuck's My Wallet and do a, and do a <laughs> mashup with um, I Left My Wallet and El Segundo by uh, A Tribe Called Quest and see how that works out. <laughs> that, ex- that answers and asks the question at the same time. Probably pull that off. Yeah, th- th- there is such an indulgence to this record uh, between leading off with that track and, uh, and the F word. And have spending a lot of money to get Roger Dean to do the cover art that apparently delayed the release of the album. You know, it just it just seems like they were doing whatever they wanted to do and weren't really thinking of making a viable product. And the fact that they broke up so soon after uh, shows that may- maybe they were recording it while thinking that there was no future and this was it. And they should just get all their ideas out right now. What was with bands that weren't really popular making ridiculous album covers? We talked to um, Jordan Zadarazny from Blink of the Star, and they spent like, what was it, like five or $15,000 for a a swan ice sculpture that they drove out into the desert so they could take pictures of it while it was melting. And it was like, but you sold like 5,000 copies of your album. Like... Well, well, when you know you're for... never going to get royalties, you might as well spend your entire advance right. while you can. I guess and so. It, and it was still under the old record. Late, yeah, I mean, it was DreamWorks. It was still and... the same. It was the old business model. I mean, I mean it's I... still not fixed, but right. it was still under the premise of, you know, that's how you sell records. Like, you know, you, you had to have a great cover and you spent money on stuff like that. And you spent money on, you know, going into a studio. You didn't do it at home. You, you know, you paid to get it done that way. And uh, I think David touched on earlier in this podcast was, you know, this is this decade is the last time that happened and probably the last time it's ever going to happen. Where you know, bands went in and they, they went in and like spent a month or two, three, four months making a quote unquote record. You know, so this has a lot of hallmarks of that that we've seen in other records that, you know, is really interesting to, to start to, to uh put tie those dots together and those points together from, you know, album cover to yeah, starting the record off on basically twenty minute twenty plus minutes of music that's not commercial in any sense of the word. <laughs> and not, apparently not <clears throat> giving two Fs about it. Bob Mold always said that the third song should be your best song. Because yeah. the the programmers aren't really listening to the first one. And they're kind of paying attention to the second. And then if you hook them at the third, you got them. And uh, I guess the Veronica Mars producers got hooked on the third song. So that worked. <laughs> so that was used in the, in the TV show? Yeah, it was used in the TV show. It does. It, it is kind of a soundtracky sounding. Uh, just that, you know, that rhythm bed. It probably would work really well for that. I hope there was a slow dolly shot during it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's It's... 
almost like this is two albums. Um, you could probably split it's ten songs. You could probably split five and five between the what I would say are are more structured and and kind of more traditional songs, and then do another five. And I guess if they were going for a more, you know, if they were actually trying to get some radio play, mainstream radio play in the 90s, they could have put five on the first half and then put the second half of the album as their experimental side and and gotten away with probably a little bit bit more of a a promotion. Because, like, I did some research on this record. There are, like David said, there's almost no reviews of this album. Actually, oddly enough, the Onion AV Club has a review of this record, which I don't even think it existed in 1997. So I don't know why they went back and reviewed the record. Um, but I did find it on, you can go back through Google Books and you can look at old epis- or old um, uh, editions of the CMJ Music Monthly, from which, David, you're probably familiar with, with this from working oh, at a yeah. radio station. And they'll list like you know the charts each week for CMJ. So this came out in January of 97. I want to take a guess what the top two records for CMJ were in uh, January of 97. Oh, wow. That's that CMJ, not the mainstream radio. Ninety-seven. Mm, it seems like a black period. Um, it does, but it's, it's actually as much dead air as this is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was um, pavement right. right in the corners. Was number one, and then uh, built to spill was number two. Okay. With um, I think perfect from now on was that was that record. I have to double check, but I, I, it was just funny going through and looking at their top fifty from January of ninety-seven when this this album was in their top 50 at that time and just all the albums that were out and you sort of forget the fact that at the same time that like just then when Spice Girls were hitting and you know I think around then Korn was getting starting to get big on their first album you sort of forget that oh yeah there still was kind of a vibrant college music scene with bands like Pavement and and Built to Spill and there was a, a ton of other ones obviously uh but that's sort of that's where the things sort of changed on a mainstream level because probably two years before that or even a year, those bands were getting some alternative radio play in the in mainstream, and not anymore. By '97, so it was sort of, it was both enlightening and depressing to read it. So, but those are fun to look go back and look at if you ever want to spend a few hours uh, lost is to go to Google Books and then put in CMJ and for some date and or year in the '90s. So, David, is this a record that you you've pretty much liked start to finish since you listened to it, or is this something that's grown on you? Like some of the materials grown on you over time? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm definitely with uh, Tim. Where the the uh, slower Judd songs were what hooked me. I would I would skip through Blade Wash or or Wallet uh, from time to time, um, but but. It did grow, and as you get familiar with those longer songs, the intricacy is is more able to stick with me. Okay, because it, it does kind of sound like a mess the the, the first few times, um, but yeah. it becomes a part of my DNA, and I, I start to appreciate it. and And I definitely I appreciate that even still, it sounds it does sound like a different band when it goes from song to song. Yeah, and, and I love that bracingness, and it, it kind of wakes me up every time a new song comes on right well that's good to hear because i think we uh i don't know when you get into music like this you feel like a little bit um you know there's the parts you latch onto and then there's the parts that just seem so strange and you feel like all right is there something about this i just don't get so 
you know, I think if we all agree here that it's actually something that you're not supposed to get right away, you're supposed to let, you know, get used to it. And the, uh, the other half of the record is what you're supposed to get right away. And then hopefully over time you sort of get the whole thing. That makes a lot more sense. And I, and I love the, uh, what you pointed out about the tension within the record, because I don't know that we've, you know, we've done, um, uh, you know, uncle Tupelo comes to mind and the tension in that band. Um, but it was, uh, I think like the examples you gave were the tension lied between two songwriters and you could hear the difference between, you know, basically what song, uh, each of them wrote where the tension in the band came from. But in the case of this band, you're saying it doesn't necessarily align with who wrote the song. So there's some other tension that's, or, you know, some other variety here that's happening that is not necessarily explained by, you know, differences in, uh, songwriting approach. I think the mysteries will remain unsolved. Maybe it's just drugs. <laughs> I think if Depending we did a mid nineties uh, Sebado album, we'd get some tension. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there um, was tension when they reunited and were performing live. You could feel it then. Yeah, or or maybe some Lou Barlow, uh, Jay Massis uh, era Dinosaur Junior. Probably some tension in those in those particular recordings. I was, there was a band I wanted to mention that is similar to some of the stuff that I'm not as comfortable with, but but I do let, like, and that's Explosions in the Sky. Are you guys familiar with them? Oh, yeah. You know, instrumental band built around, I, I, they kind of not have a formula, but when you hear sort of one Explosions in the Sky album, you can kind of get an idea of what a lot of them are going to sound like, where they start with a small sort of guitar part and then build and the tension builds in the song and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then it sort of collapses on itself. Um, if you haven't heard them and you've seen the movie Friday Night Lights, which then became the TV show Friday Night Lights, uh, Explosions of the Sky is featured like, uh, quite a bit in that t- uh, movie because they're very appropriate for dramatic moments, I guess you'd say. And there were some aspects of the instrumental songs that reminded me of them but i think that the one i guess the thing that held me back is on a song like flower for Algernon or um blade wash the the tension just seems to be by adding like a second guitar that's just doing some feedback and noise and this the first guitar which tends to be like a slow picked clean guitar doesn't really ever change it just sort of keeps moving along and i guess what i and maybe jay you could back me up on this i would like to have heard the band as a whole pick up the momentum rather than just at some point introducing a loud guitar and then, and then bringing it back down. And that was it. It felt like almost like they had this acoustic or not acoustic, but they had this picked guitar part and they just had it sitting there. And then we're like, uh, let's throw a loud guitar on top of it as opposed to let's develop it as a band. That was the, that was, I think the thing that was sort of holding me back from really liking this record as a whole. Yeah, and I think that there's, um, you know, I'm not super familiar with Explosions in the Sky. I've heard some stuff, and I, I would say the difference is that uh, there's, you know, several moments on the Space Needle record where, you know, it steps over the line of what's, I would consider, you know, most people would consider pleasant to listen to. <laughs> you know, essentially sounds that, you know, don't hurt you. So if you think about, like, Blade Wash, there's, that, there's a segment, you know, towards the... You know, about three quarters to that song where it just 
this wall of noise happens and it's like you know nobody really wants to listen to that you know it's not a pleasant sound to listen to it's like metal Um, machine music yeah and there's also some very strange dissonance and just other things that happen on this record that i'm not quite sure you know explosions in the sky go quite that far they sort of come up to the line of they they play with all the dynamics and the drama and um, experiment but they don't go over the line of like okay that's sound that humans don't really like <laughs> now conceptually from an art standpoint you know being a designer i can appreciate the the intent there um but the you know the fact remains that you know a lot of people are not going to want to listen to those sounds because they're just not pleasant sounds to hear they're definitely pushing it in terms of that well i don't know that they're necessarily making the music <clears throat> to actually have people enjoy because I, I once read a quote from jeff Tweedy, who said that one of the songs that he wrote for a ghost is born features i can't remember which track it is but it features like a couple minutes of just horrific noise and he said he was Mm -hmm. trying to replicate what he hears in his head when he gets a really bad he gets migraine headaches yeah and and it would like decimate him like he'd have to lay down and curl up into a ball because he gets these horrible headaches and he's trying Mm -hmm. to replicate what that sounds like in his head not because he wants people to enjoy it (laughs) not because he thinks it's pleasant but he's just trying right, to replicate right. this this noise that's in his head. I can appreciate that, but I'll never listen to that track because right. I don't I don't want to listen to somebody's migraine headache. Right. I mean, as an artist, I would you compare want... it to uh, I would compare it to uh, Husker Du Zen Arcade, the last song. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that that's about a fifteen minute jam with tons of feedback, and you know it, it's got some tight parts that it comes back to, but there are a lot of uh, sections that are hard to listen to. Or, or just high-pitched uh, wine. And uh, also, the Space Needle album came out around the same time that Mogwai were releasing records, which is, you know, Mogwai are the original Explosions in the Sky. So, right. and Mogwai's earlier albums also had, they, they had the extreme loud, soft dynamic, more so than anything on this record, and, and did have a lot of difficult portions that, that were interesting. And if you're looking for other contemporary bands, there's a horribly named band from Texas called This Will Destroy You. Uh, and, and I think they're making... They, they, they sound... Yeah. Well, they, they sound very influenced by Explosions in the Sky and Mogwai. And, uh, but, but they're making fantastic music right now. Well, in the I, same. I, I like Jesus and Mary Chain. And if you go back to their really early stuff, there are a lot of songs that are just caked with feedback and distortion and they're not necessarily the most pleasant songs, but they get away with it because they have those like sort of buried Beach Boy harmonies. Yeah, and they're the only track. two and a half minutes long. And they're only two and a half minutes long, exactly. So they can get away with those those noises. I mean, obviously they've refined their their sound, you know, halfway through their career or a couple albums into their career. Um, but I guess I can take it in doses. Uh, and I, I, you know, like I said, I'm on board with Sonic Youth and whatnot. Back, well, I guess I have to refer to them as in the past tense. But there's certain frequencies when when bands hit them, I'm like, I'm out. I can't take that. <laughs> yeah, so. I mean, I, I would say that we're you're uh, I'm you know left of center. You're a little bit further left, and this band is way way right. way to the left. So um, there's just everybody has a line where all of a sudden what you're I guess comfortable with or expecting or wanting out of music, you know, that's kind of where you sit. 
and what goes over that. It's fun to be challenged, and boy, have we been challenged this season. Mostly <laughs> this, thanks this to like, David. He's been yeah. he's throwing the gauntlet down. This would be a I mean, good that, what? What? Go ahead. That show to the think record was. Uh, I'm still recovering from that. So. Yeah, that was that. that I need was a breather. Intense. We need to. Yeah. Can we do like a warrant record from the '90s or something? <laughs> yeah, after show to the simple. think and uh, and 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 this and. Yeah, we need we need some power pop. I need I need uh need something. Hey, was Shutter to Think on a major label for the one that you? Reviewed? Yeah, they were on. Um, Jay, what were they on? Mm. It was their. It was when they left Discord and they signed to their. They signed their major label deal. So I say it was Atlantic, maybe. Or? Yeah, it was. I think it was Atlantic. So, and they made their most aggressive and. Oh yeah, built the Spills first uh, Warner record. All those songs were eight minutes long and. Mm-hmm. If they're only single, they had to break it into parts one and two, put it on a seven inch. So these bands right took the money the, and uh, did did whatever the hell they wanted. They were on. They are listed as that album being released on Sony Music Entertainment. Okay. Whatever label that used to be, it's now owned by Sony. <laughs> was, uh, Ween's, I think Ween's first record was Pure Guava on Electra. Their mm-hmm. first major label record was all very tinny and difficult to listen to and. I, I, you know, they got on Beavis and Butthead and whatever, but that was a pretty uncommercial record. I have no doubt that there was lots of uh, drug use in the 90s by not only the musicians, but by the A&R guys who were signing bands like Ween to major label deals. We thought, I don't know who thought that Ween was going to be the next Nirvana, because <laughs> I, I can see where they were like looked at Silverchair and they said, ooh, we can make some money off of that band, but I don't know how you look at Ween and go... We are gonna make a million dollars off of Ween. Yeah. That's just that's a stre- that's a, a leap I can't take. So we should uh, we're chug- chugging along here. We should get to the uh, the rating for this record. Whether it's a worthy album, a better EP, or a decent single. David, I'm gonna start with you. I'm curious. Uh, after our takedown of certain aspects of this album, are you still at a worthy album? Or have you have you crumbled under our our expertise? Uh, if if I was releasing this record, I would take off "Flowers for Algernon" and make that an A side on an EP, and make "Blade Wash" the B side, and cut this down to eight songs, which would still be a forty-five to fifty-minute worthy album. All right, I like that thinking. Playing playing the producer role. Or the, but uh, yeah, or then you'd only have you, you'd have Hypatia Lee, which has the the fun violin and uh, mm-hmm. and, and Wallet. I think is the most uh, successful of the extended songs. Uh, so I would leave those on for the variety. All right, Jay. I'm at EP. I, I got five songs in this album. Starred. You know, I think there's some interesting things going on here from a from a direction standpoint on those those songs. And um, you know, I could take I guess one kind of lullaby is maybe the one of the longer songs that I like the best because it still has a pretty good sense of melody to it. So in terms of being experimental, that's about as far as I want to go with this record. Um, so I'm at a DP. I am as well. I'm at, I'm at four songs. Uh, all the ones that I mentioned earlier that I liked, that's, that's where I'm at. I would add, uh, if I was making an EP, I'd probably stick never lonely alone. Love left us strangers, hot for Krishna. One kind of lullaby. And I might sneak on a bonus on, you know, uh, track that's uh, unmarked, perhaps um, Old Spice, because it has that My Bloody Valentine 
kind of feel to it for me. Uh, but that would definitely be a bonus track and not a, a listed track. So to get specific about it. You guys didn't respond to my comparison of uh, Hot for Teacher and Hot for Krishna. Well, it's so Do you blatant. Think I'm completely nuts. No, I mean clearly there there's a comparison. Okay, yeah, it's making it's pretty sure. intentional with the title too. I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. I can even A B them on the show, like I did on the the Shutter to Think with their cover of uh, So Into You and uh, the Atlanta Rhythm Section's original version. So. I can I can gladly do that. I can segue from one into the other, so people can hear the clear influence of Van Halen on this band. And Thank that's you something that. that oh, great! So what? I give you Paola, and I get Van Halen. That's a, <laughs> that's a good deal right there. What more can you ask for? That's what uh, that's what we're here for. We're here to make unusual connections that some might find absurd, but we find completely and totally relevant. Like you I said, Alice Cooper into the uh, Shutter to Think episode. Yeah. We are we are all about connections, connections between people who like music and connections between ridiculous uh, '80s and, and '90s artists uh, that have no to make no sense. David, you're going to be bringing us another record soon. You want to preview that? <laughs> oh yeah, I'm giving you sports guitar, right? Yes, which. I, uh... A European band, which also has tension within the group, sort of an indie rock acoustic guitar singer. And then the uh, other half of the band is loud, dissonant, experimental guitar. Uh, And you might find it unpleasant. So I look forward to hearing that. (laughs) Or you might find it brilliant. Usually we're somewhere in between. Yeah, it sounds sounds like an EP. We will see. We'll, but we that's will see. you know that's my favorite. Yeah, that, that's what I gravitate to. I gravitate towards that inner band tension, the uh, different sounds within between songs and within songs. God bless can, the '90s. I can yeah. God exactly. God bless the '90s. Well, I think that we have reached the uh, end of our program, and uh, I want to remind people that if they like what they heard on this episode, they should consider leaving us some feedback over at our iTunes page, and of course. You also can request a review by visiting our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. By the time this episode airs, we should have uh, moved over to our new Tumblr page that Jay has been working on with all its new fancy gizmos and gadgets. And it's going to be quite a. It's just going to be the same site, just simpler. Well, no, you got new buttons. And uh, it's just just, going to be cleaner. Yes. A little less drunk junk to going on. A little less of like Tim trying to do a major label. That's, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. <laughs> Actually, we're sort of we're we're going from our little self-released label to maybe like a cool indie. Cuz that's what I think of Tumblr as. It's like the hip label now. Yeah, we we used to be on Blogger, that's owned by Google, so I guess they're the corporate monster. Oh, I guess so, so it's like going from like Sony to Matador. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Or merge. Or something like that. Or, or, or zero hour. There you go. Uh, David, thank you for joining us. This was cool to have uh, one of our suggestors sort of share their insights on the record. We appreciate you stopping by and, and hopping on the Skype. Was this your first time using Skype or were you familiar with it? I, didn't, I don't use Skype very much because I am an old man. Uh, you are our age. You're not that old. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, technology is not my friend. 
I, I am analog in a digital world. I still listen to podcasts. I mean, come on. Yeah, there you go. It's, <laughs> podcasts are digital. This was my first extended uh, Skype experience, and it was lovely. And uh, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be uh, on iTunes. It's yeah. You are now a, you are now a, an artist on iTunes. Um, the royalties will start rolling rolling in like they do for us. So um, enjoy them for the. You better clear out a closet because you're going to yeah. need it for all the baskets of cash. <laughs> <laughs> no, Stack sincerely though. Thank you for being supportive of the podcast. We go, we we greatly appreciate it. And um, uh, if you want to come back sometime in the future, you are more than welcome to. And we're looking forward to the sports guitar episode. And and make sure to uh, pick that free one because um, Jay really wants to hear. Uh, what was that one that you said that had the poetry? Uh, oh yeah, Jay... uh, Shrimper Records, the A Club. I, I think I may not punish you though with with the A Club. <laughs> come on, pick a hard one. Enough of this Spotify. easy crap. All right, I'll, I'll send it to your inbox. And uh, do you have anything in a foreign language? We haven't done a foreign language. We haven't done a foreign language album yet. Oh wow! That's my. There's my challenge. Perhaps German. Uh, we'd even go with like some sort of a, a Latin language, maybe so, or old school. Somebody's actually using old Latin as their vocal de- vocal. Uh, we we go with that or too. Guitar actually singing in, in English, so uh, they have an That's accent. Definitely. So that's a start. That'll do. <laughs> uh, Luna's Luna's cover of Bonnie and Clyde by Serge Gainsbourg. That's in French. Is, is that just one song? Yeah, it's just. I don't think we can do a whole episode around one song. Uh, stereo, you have Stereo Lab. Half of Stereo Lab songs are in French. That's true. I might Jay yeah, might uh, Jay might protest if we have to do a Stereo Lab album. I've guaranteed <laughs> him that pretty much at, there's there's going to be a guitar not... at some point. Yeah, well, at this point, I'm not sure I could protest anything. I'm I'm way out on the uh, the edge here. Hey, Aaron Perino threatened to to bring us a KRS One album, so you better not you better not say that. Well, I, I will say that I will draw the line. It it has to fit the definition of rock in some form or another. Doesn't necessarily have to have a guitar, but you have to be able to justify that if it's the format of rock, because that is in the show description. It is. Thank you for it's reminding It's 90s me. and rock. It's not 90s and rap or 90s and R&B or 90s and hip-hop. It's 90s so you, and rock. So you're yeah. you okay with the funk junkies? No. I don't think that is, but I'm not okay with it. They did that cover of Kisses I Love It Loud, but they did it like a hip-hop version of it, but with guitars in the 90s. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, I'm going to send it to you, and you're going to hate it. You son you're, of a bitch. <laughs> you're gonna, I'm going to make it so that it auto-plays when you, every time you open your email. And you're going to want to stab to your computer with a fork. Well, you haven't done any trip hop. Actually, I had. I have a trip hop album that I want to do, but uh, okay. it's uh, it's been delayed. I'm trying to get as many interviews lined up right now as possible, so I bumped them out of my picks for interviews. So, oh, nice. so they'll be coming up soon. But I think we, I think we should wrap up now. So, David, thank you oh, for yeah. joining us, and uh, I hope the monsoon doesn't wipe you out. Uh, that just wiped went through uh, Columbus and uh, Jay. Thanks again for uh, joining me. This was episode one nineteen of season three of Dig Me Out. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Love left a stranger. 
Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Cause we took it